Well, hello, everybody. How are we doing today? Doing all right? Good to be together on this holiday weekend. If you fall asleep, I'm not offended. I recognize we all had probably a lot of turkey. Hey, my name's Joel. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to see you all. I'm so grateful I get to be a part of this, and I'm excited to jump into our time of teaching uh, and as we do that, I just, I'm, it's been so fun for our family. We've been back like now almost four months and it's so neat. I feel like we've stepped out of this time, time capsule kind of thing. So when we left, my, my girls were like this tall and now they're like this tall and our oldest is driving. And so that's really been an adventure coming back to the LA area and being like, hey, let's learn how to drive. And so like, we're, like when we're driving through the pass, I'm like, here's how you take the turns and here's how you make sure like you get onto the property safe and stuff. And, it, and I was just thinking about this this week as she's been driving, like it reminded me of a time when we were here in our first visit, our first time with all of you when I was driving to get here on the Saturday night service. And like, have you ever like realized you're going to be late? Like, and that's not a good thing when you're on staff and you have a job to do, right? So, so I have my oldest with me. At the, for whatever reason, Christy was with our ER. So I have my oldest back, and she's in a little car seat, and we're leaving Simi Valley. Now, I don't know if you live on the Simi side or the Valley side, but if you're coming here from the Simi side, you're shooting up the 118, and you want to get off on Rocky Peak Road. But if you get over too soon, you're stuck behind the slow trucks. Anyone feel that pain when you're there? And so now I'm trying to make sure we're getting there on time to the service. And so I'm like off to the side now, like weaving through the traffic, just like so impressed with my driving skills because of how awesome this is. And, and then it doesn't take me very long to look in my rearview mirror and I see this car come up behind, behind me and just getting up right up behind me. And fortunately, it's not a black and white vehicle. So I'm like, okay, so I'm not getting pulled over. This isn't a ticket. So I'm like, well, I'm, I'm just going to move so this person can follow. But then as I change the lane, they change the lane. And so now as I change another lane, they change lane, and they're like right on my rear. And I'm like, what is going on? Because again, like growing up in LA, like you know that stuff happens on freeways. And so you're just always like, like they teach you offensive driving. That's just what we learn here. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to shake this guy because the, the exit's coming up. So I'm going to be two lanes over. And then right at the last minute, I clear all the way across the 19 and I get off on the exit. And I'm like, good, except he's right behind me. I'm like, he's a good driver too. What's going on? And so I'm coming up to the stop. There's two stop signs that you need to make. And I'm like, it's clear, it's clear. There's no hikers or bikers. So I just blow through both stop signs to shake this guy. Because I'm like, this is not, like, this doesn't feel good. And so then I'm a couple of turns onto the pass. And suddenly I realize he's right up against me again. And I'm like, so he's late too for something. I don't know what's going on. So now we're getting up to the turn to come on to Rocky Peak, and I'm like, I will lose him here. He'll just continue on into the valley and on his merry way. And so then I make my turn hard and fast to get to the parking lots, and he's behind me again. And I'm thinking, well, surely someone who drives like this doesn't go to church here. <laughs> like, what is going on? And so I pull into the parking lot, and he's on my tail all the way. And so I'm parking on the lower lot because I'm going to drop Indy off to her kids' class. And so I, I kind of pull out of the car. I get Indy, and he parks next to us. And then he comes out of the car, and he's coming up to me really hot. Those are intense moments, right? And I'm like, I don't know what's going on. And then I suddenly recognize him. And I'm like, I know you. And you're not one of the crazy ones. Okay, so like, what's going on? And he comes up with this intense face, and he's like, Joel. Joel, you can't drive like that. <laughs> and I know this guy, and he's actually a retired CHP officer. And so I realize you probably know what you're talking about. And, and he's like, I noticed as you were driving up the, the 118 that your back tires are underinflated, and then you started to drive really dangerous, so I was catching up to you to try and warn you. 
and in that moment, there's like just this, this mixture of feelings. Is I'm like, one of all, it's relief because this is somebody I know who's actually like like wanting to look out for me. But there was like this weird tension too. And then as he began to talk, he just said like, Joel, I have seen too much in what I've done, and I don't want that to be true for you. And I suddenly realized he's looking out for me. Like he he, he cares about me. He cares about my family enough to chase me through the pass to warn me. And yet what was amazing is that something rose up in me. There was this tension I was feeling, this, this mixture. At one hand, just incredible gratitude for somebody who was willing to do that, to look out for me. But at the same time, there was this other part of me that was like, but who do you think you are to tell me how to drive? Am I the only one who wrestles with authority? Anyone else? A few of you? Yeah, there's just this tension that was in me of like gratitude and like, how dare you? And And I wonder if that tension is what the Corinthians maybe felt the first time they were reading Paul's letter. This letter that we've been unpacking as a church, this letter that was written by one of the early Christian leaders, a man named Paul, who who was writing to a group of Christians living in the city of Corinth in the first century, this group of people that he had traveled to to share the message of Jesus with, to, to invite them into this new life, and they encountered Jesus, and their life was changed, and they were following him, and he helped get this church started, and then he had left to go do other things that God had called him to, but, but he's now writing a letter back to them because he's caught wind of some stuff that's going on in the church. And, and they've actually got some questions of their own that they're hoping he'll address about how do we follow Jesus? And, and so Paul's writing this letter, but we've been unpacking it. And it's a letter that's, that there's times where like Paul's kind of coming in hot. It's like Paul's like, like chasing them through the past, through the words in this letter, because he's actually wanting to look out for them. Because he, he's, he's their spiritual leader and he's their spiritual father and he's trying to protect them. But but there's those times where you're run, wondering and they're wrestling. Because one of the big things that they're trying to figure out is whose values do we live by now? Do we live by the values of our culture that's all around us, that's just a part of who we are? It's maybe even our cultural identity. Or do we step out of these and embrace the values of Jesus? And, and there's this dance that they've been having, and Paul's been writing to them about this. And, and we've been looking at these words for our lives today because these aren't simply ancient words of historical interest. Like these are words that were God breathed because through these words, God's wanting to paint a picture of life for all of us who would follow after Jesus. These are words that, that if we're willing to lean in and listen to them, they'll speak truth to our stories today. They'll review, reveal the truth about who God is and who we are in light of who God is. And, and so we're, we're chasing after these because these are very relevant words because we're still wrestling with the same question today. Whose values do we live by? Do we live by the values of our culture? Or do we live by the values of Jesus and his kingdom? And as we've been walking through this, for those of you that have been a part of the the journey, it's been so much good stuff that we're learning, but I don't know, have you felt the tension in yourself? Have you wondered about this? Like, man, these these are words of protection, someone looking out for me, but at the same time, I don't want someone telling me how to live my life. And so as we step in today, I just want you to know the tension is going to be there. So let's pay attention to that, because maybe in the tension, God's wanting to wake us up to something. And so let's just take a moment and pause and invite Jesus to come and to let his voice be the loudest voice we hear in the room today. And so Jesus, we want to come into this moment acknowledging some things. First of all, we just want to acknowledge that you're king. That means we need your voice in our lives. 
And as we're wrestling with the things in our story today, and we're looking, we're looking into your word as we're, as we're wrestling with it, would, would we be willing to be honest with you in that wrestle? but also be hopeful about why there's a wrestling going on. That in some way that tension within us is you wanting to protect us, look out for us, speak words of life into us. And so Jesus, so often you would say this when you were teaching people back in the day, you would say, let those who have ears to hear, hear. And so Jesus, would we have ears that are willing to listen to you today? That you have permission to come into this place and speak into our lives. And then would we have the courage to follow you with whatever you want to say today. And so come, Jesus, come and have your way. Amen, amen. Okay, well, let's jump into this. First Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to continue into this. And the section that we've been spending some time in the last couple of weeks is, is Paul's wanting to address one of the big issues that they had. So for them, there was this tension within their culture, the, the cultural values of their day. This is a very pagan culture. And so there's idolatry and idols and pagan temples all over the world and all over the place that they're living in at that time. And, and so one of the things that they're trying to figure out is how, how do I follow Jesus while living in this place that I find myself in? And and so one of the things that they were asking, like, is it okay for us to eat meats coming into our lives that had been sacrificed at pagan altars? And one of the things that we saw as Paul was helping them wrestle through this issue was, hey, the, the, the more important question to be asking is, what does it look like to love the others in your story well as you walk out the freedom you have in Christ in these areas? And, and yet one of the things that would happen is so often in their day, everything that you take part of in a social setting would most likely take place at a pagan temple because that's just kind of where you went. So if you're having a business lunch, you're probably having it at a pagan temple and now you're participating in the pagan things and the adultery. And like, is this, are we supposed to do this or not? What does this look like? How do we walk this out? And, and so Paul's going to want to help address some of this with them. And so last week we saw he was really talking to them about how, how do we deal with the temptation we may have to fall back into the broken ways of our culture. And, and he's like, hey, there's some really good news. Like, like what you're struggling with is, is common to everyone, and God will help you with this. God will provide a way out. And, and so now he's going to get very specific about idolatry itself. Like what's the response we should have? And as we're looking at this, I, just, I want you to catch this. Imagine that this is Paul chasing them through the pass because he's looking out for them, because he cares about them. And so as we jump in here in verse 14, we read this. Paul says this, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. So catch that. that that's, the, that's the big message when it comes to idolatry that Paul would want them to understand that we need to understand. When it comes to idolatry, we don't fiddle around with it. We don't flirt with it. The response of, to idolatry is to run from it to run away from it. And so here we see that Paul's wanting to protect them from something about this, that Paul's wanting to help them understand that this is a bit like idolatry is a big deal. It has real life implications. And so what we're going to see as we walk through this is that Paul's wanting to protect them in a couple of ways. The first way we're going to see is that he's going to want to protect them from the folly of idolatry, why this thing is so dangerous. But we're also going to see he's wanting to protect them for something. And he's going to want to protect them for their fidelity to Jesus because they belong to him now. And so as we jump in, we're going to see this. And so he says, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. And I speak to sensible people. So judge for yourselves what I say. And I love this because he's inviting them to just engage with him in this conversation. Like, hey, you, you've seen enough of Jesus. You've experienced enough. You should make sense of this. So I just want to invite you to like take what you've discovered and learned and apply it to the conversation that we're having. 
Like, as a father, I'll sometimes have this kind of a conversation with my daughters, and my language to them is like, hey, just do the math on that. Like, in light of what you've come to discover about life, whatever, just kind of do the math and see what makes the most sense. Like, what's the right path, the right decision to make? And so Paul's inviting them to engage with them in the conversation. And so now he's about to set up a spiritual parallel to help point out the spiritual reality of what happens with idolatry. And it's going to be this idea that, hey, what you participate in matters because you're participating with something very real. And so the spiritual parallel he's going to set up is like, look what happens when we participate with Jesus through this thing called communion. And so he says, is is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? And so he's pointing to this thing called communion. Communion is this beautiful gift that Jesus gave us as we begin to follow after him. So if you're familiar with his story, the night that he was betrayed, when, when everything kind of goes crazy in the story and everyone's like, what's going on? And Jesus is like, I'm saving the world. I got this, but no one understood in the moment. Like he's having this meal with his first followers. They're celebrating as Jewish people in the first century, they're celebrating this beautiful thing called Passover, which was this awesome celebration of God's deliverance and rescue of their people from ancient times back in the Egyptian story. So remember the movie Prince of Egypt? Like that's, like that's what Passover is, it's celebrating God's deliverance and victory and how God had provided for them and protected for them and redeemed them. And so in the middle of this meal, Jesus takes the elements. And basically what he says is this whole time, Passover has been pointing to me. So he takes the bread and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body and it's going to be broken for you. And he takes the cup and he says, this, is, this wine is going to be my blood. It's going to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. He says, I, I, I'm doing something new. This is now going to be a new covenant, a new thing that God is doing through me for all of you. And he says, so do this to remember me. So communion is something that we do not as a religious ritual. We do it as a relational reminder that Jesus is at work in our stories now. And it's something really beautiful. And the the point that Paul's making here is that, hey, when you're participating in this, you're actually connecting with Jesus. And it's not simply about an individual connection because he goes on, he goes, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body for we all share the one loaf. And so it kind of matters what you participate in because it's not just about you. It's also about this new community that you've stepped into. And, and so when we do communion together to, as a church, what often happens is that we're connecting with Jesus in our own stories, but we're also participating in something really beautiful together. It builds our community. So if you're here last week, you know that we did commun- communion together as a church and, and across our services. And it's one of the ways that we do it as a church. One of my favorite ways that we do it as a church is when we do communion in our small groups, in our life groups. There's just something way more like intimate about that experience of doing communion together in that way. But something beautiful happens when we do that. It's something powerful and profound because we're, we're participating in the sacred meal. And as we engage together through communion in our worship of Jesus, it unites us to him and it unites us to one another. And so this is the parallel that Paul's pointing out, that what you participate in matters. There's a spiritual reality taking place. And so for the follower of Jesus... You're either participating in a spiritual reality with Jesus or you're participating in a spiritual reality with something else through idolatry. So here's the parallel that he's making. And so now he points them to another example of this. He's pointing them back to ancient Israel in their practice through sacrifice. And so verse 18, he says, consider the people of Israel 
Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? And so he's pointing back to the the ancient sacrifices that the ancient Israelites would have participated in, where in order to to worship God and, and to approach God, there needed to be a sacrifice. And so animals were brought and sacrificed at the altar to, to be a covering for their sin. And it was brutal. And, and the point that God's making is like sin is brutal. And there's a consequence to it and, it, and it requires sacrifice. And this whole system that was at place was pointing to the ultimate sacrifice that would come, that Jesus would be the once-for-all sacrifice. And what Paul's trying to help them understand is like, you, you know the story. You know that they would do this. And oftentimes when they were at the, they're, they're, they're doing their sacrifices and they're sacrificing the animals, they would then eat the animals because it's kind of like a holy barbecue. It's kind of what we're going. So there's this participation of what's going on. So for ancient Israel... This is how they would engage in worship, through their sacrifices. That they're participating in a spiritual reality because they're participating with God through their worship. And so for the Corinthians, hearing these parallels, it it creates some implications in their mind to consider and think through. And so like Paul, if you're saying that when when we participate in communion, we're connecting with the real Jesus, we're connecting with him through that. And when ancient Israel would participate in their sacrifices, they would engage and, and be connected with God. And so Paul, if if we're engaging in the pagan temples, are you saying that the, the pagan gods are real? And it's almost as if Paul anticipates that question because he goes on, verse 19, and he says, well, do I mean that a food sacrifice to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. And, and he's already pointed this out earlier in 1 Corinthians 8, 4, where he says, like, an, an idol's not really anything. It's just, it's just like a piece of wood but that doesn't mean there's not a spiritual reality taking place. Because look at what he says, is an idol anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. That's like some good advice, right? Like, I mean, like, like as a dad, I'm like, hey girls, let's not play with demons, okay? Like, cause I'm looking out for them. And like, here's Paul, like, I want you to understand that when you're messing around with idolatry, there's a spiritual reality that you're playing with, and it's not good. And I think like, we, we need to kind of step back and pause and, and let that impact us for a minute, that, that there is a spiritual reality at play in the world all around us. And it doesn't matter how modern we may think we are and how scientifically advanced we may be, There's more to life than just the physical universe. There's a spiritual reality that we're all caught up in. And what we need to recognize about that spiritual reality is is that it's at war. And when we mess with idolatry, we're messing with forces that are at war against God and against Jesus. That's why Paul will write to another group of Christians in one of his other letters, Ephesians chapter 6. And he's telling them, you need to put on the armor of God because there's a battle that you're involved in. There's a war that you're going. So you can take your stand against the devil and his schemes. And then in Ephesians 6, verse 12, Paul says, for our struggle, it's not against flesh and blood. Meaning like the broken humanity that we're all caught up in, other human beings are not the enemy as much as we may be at odds with them. The real enemy, he says, is that there's spiritual powers that are at work in the unseen realms. That's where the war is at. And so when we're messing around with idolatry, Paul's saying like, hey, there's something going on and he's wanting to protect them from this. And so for the Corinthians that are kind of dabbling and messing and kind of, well, I got one foot following Jesus and one foot still kind of living in my culture and the values, I think it would be very easy for them to be like, well, I mean, but Paul, does it really matter? I mean, does it really matter? Like, why, why can't I have Jesus and the ways of my culture as well? 
Like, why, why can't I kind of just continue kind of doing these things? Because, I mean, I really know it's about Jesus. Does it really matter? Can I continue to follow after Jesus and chase the things of my culture? And Paul's answer is a resounding no. No, you can't. You can't have both. You can't have Jesus and the values of your culture because the values of their culture are not benign. The values of their culture are at odds with this new life that Jesus has called them into. So he goes on in verse 21 and he says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. You know that tension we were talking about where I don't like someone telling me like what to do with my life? Like I, I'm feeling that tension. Like I'm not even a Corinthian. And I'm like, I don't like someone telling me. Like, and I think my question would be like, well, Paul, but why not? Like why can't I have Jesus and have the things of my culture that I still want? And I think the answer is very simple. Joel, it's not just about you. Like you're not the only one in the equation. It's not just about you. It's not just about what you think or you want because there's another person in the equation and his name is Jesus. And what he thinks matters. And Jesus is not just some weekend hookup or a spiritual consultant we have on speed dial for when we need help. Like he's king and he is Lord. And see, when Jesus invites us into this new life, he's purchased for us. He's purchased it with his life and his death and his resurrection. And so if we're going to follow him into that new life, it requires something from us. It requires this thing called surrender. This is what Paul had talked to him about earlier in 1 Corinthians 6. He's like, hey, you don't belong to yourself. You were bought at a price. So honor him with your body. And here's the amazing thing. When Jesus offers us this life, it's this open invitation. Come one, come all. I have a life for you. But for us to step into that life, we have to surrender our life as it is to embrace the new. That's why when Jesus calls people to, to step into a new life, he says two words, simple words with incredible implications. Follow me, he says. Follow me, Jesus says, because he's the leader He's the king. He's Lord. And I think what, what can often happen is too often we can be like some of these Corinthians and what we want to do is add Jesus to our lives instead of giving Jesus all of our life. And we want to approach relationship with him as if somehow we're the ones who are negotiating the terms. And so we'll come to Jesus oftentimes and we'll say something like, Jesus, thank you so much for this incredible gift of life that you've offered me. Thank you that you want to do something new in my story. And so I'm going to follow you, but here are my conditions. So Jesus, here's my rider. Can you sign off on all these things? Because then I'll follow you. And like, Jesus, what I really want to do is, is like follow you, but still hold on to my ways and the way I want to do life. And so Jesus, I don't want to embrace sexuality the way you call me to. I want to do my own thing. Jesus, I don't want to follow your advice on how to manage finances and, and to be a generous person. I, I want to just take care of myself and my own. Or Jesus, I don't want to do relationships the way you call me to do relationships. I just want to like the people I want to like, and I'm going to hate people I don't like. What is this love my enemy stuff you're talking about? That's not on my rider. And we think that we can follow Jesus that way. And, and then we wonder, why isn't it working? 
Which is why aren't you showing up in my life? Where's the power I thought that you promised me? Where's your spirit at work transforming me from the inside out? Jesus, why isn't this working? And, and I think the reason why that doesn't work is because Jesus isn't really all that interested in following us. Right? Like, like he loves us for sure. He's done something incredible for us. And yet he doesn't follow us because we're not the ones on the path of life. He's the path of life. Like it would it'd be like if you, you could envision this. Like let's say we were out on a big ship somewhere in the middle of the ocean and then the ship starts to sink. And so now we're just kind of floundering in the water and like we find like, like a table or maybe the thing that Jack and Rose were on. And we, we say, I think it can hold both of us. I think she was wrong, but whatever. Like that's controversial. We don't have to go there. But we're now holding on to this thing kind of for our lives and we're just kind of lost at sea. And suddenly the Coast Guard shows up and they're like, hey, we're here to rescue. And you're like, great, but I want to hold on to all the stuff that I think is so important to me. Like, can I bring the boat? Can I bring the, the, the door with me? Like, I have scurvy now. I've come to be accustomed to it. Can I hold on to my scurvy, please? Like, that would be so ridiculous. And yet that's so often what happens when we do that. And here's the reality. The, the fact that I need a savior necessitates that I'm the one who needs to surrender. Because I'm the one who needs the life he's offering. And so here's Paul coming out strong because he's looking out for them. He's wanting to protect them from what they're messing around with, protect them from the folly of idolatry. But not just that, he's wanting to protect them for their fidelity to Jesus. So he says, you can't have both. You can't have the cup of demons and the cup of the Lord. And look at what he says next, verse 22. He says, are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And I'm like, Paul, wait, wait, Paul, what are you saying? Paul, are you saying that like, Jesus gets jealous? I don't know about you, but now the tension's getting really big inside of me. And I'm like, I, this feels weird, like, 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 I don't, like, Paul, this seems like, G, like Jesus is possessive. I don't, like, he's singing every breath you take and kind of like, walk, well, like, I'm just like, I don't know if I like this. And, and here's the reality. Like, Paul's just not making this up. Paul, Paul's simply sharing what God has already said about who he is. So you go back into the, the older stories when, when God's revealing himself to the Israelites through Moses and, and giving, here's what it means to walk in relationship with me. Exodus 34, 14, God says this, you will have no other gods because I am a jealous God. My name is Jealous. Whew. Like what, do, what do we do with that? Like what, what do you do when you come upon something that you discover about God as he's been revealed and it makes you uncomfortable? Because I think we've got some choices of what to do. I think for some of us, we're like, I'm out. I don't like that. That's not what I want. And so we just kind of drift away or do our own thing. I think for some of us, what we try to do is, is jump on a PR campaign for God. Like, God, that just doesn't fly with our culture. So can we just kind of push that to the background? And God, I'm going to actually try to change your image to fit what's convenient and comfortable for me. That's bold. I mean, think about it. Like I, I, I'm coming to God. I'm a 40-something-year-old man. I'm on the end of 40, so I'm going to say 40-something. But... And I'm going to come to the eternal God and tell him who I think he needs to be so I'm more comfortable? 
That just seems off, doesn't it? Maybe the better approach is to just pause and say, God, I don't know if I understand. God, I don't know if I fully get this, but here's what I do know. You're good and you're great. In fact, you're greater than me. And so maybe if I'm willing to lean in and and walk with you long enough, this will make sense to me. That I will come to see that for you to be something that feels uncomfortable right now might actually be really, really good. And see, I think one of the reasons why I wrestle with the idea that, that God would get jealous is because so often what I do is that I look at myself in jealousy and then I put my dysfunction on God. Because when I'm jealous, it's, all, it's never good. Because usually when I'm jealous, it's because I want what you've got. Am I the only one? Is that how it works for you? Anyone else? Like, isn't it like the grass is always greener, so I just want to like tear down the fence and take over their grass? Like, that's how it works. That's why like when, when God's speaking to us about how to live life and do relationships with one another, the last of the Ten Commandments is do not covet. Like, don't want your neighbor's stuff. Because <laughs> that's never healthy. So for me to be jealous is, ever, is almost never really good because it's me wanting what someone else has. That's me putting my dysfunction on God. So for God to be jealous, that's not how it works. For God to be jealous is actually a good thing because this is what it means for God to be jealous. It means that God is appropriately possessing what is rightfully his and desiring to protect it. He's appropriately possessing what is rightfully his and desiring to protect it. I think like just the times in my life when I've come closest to what I would call good jealousy is when I'm being protective over my daughters, especially when they were little and creepy people were in, in, in proximity. Right, so like if I was at the park with my girls and we're kind of playing and having fun, there are often be times where I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go sit and kind of hang out and you, get, you girls have fun and I'd watch them play, but then I'm immediately like, who's that dude? What's that guy doing over there? He's got a puppy. That's a dangerous man, right? Like, that's just kind of like, like the natural thing. And there's something appropriate rising up in me because I want to protect them because they're mine. But could you imagine a scenario where I went to the park with the girls and then we're having fun and then I come home and Chrissy's like, how was it? And I'm like, yeah, it went all right. And she's like, where are the girls? And I said, the weirdest thing happened. This dude showed up and he said that they're his now and I didn't want to offend him. So I guess we're starting over. Like, what? Like, I, I mean, she would be like, what is wrong with you? Like, if you don't have the girls anymore, it better be because you were knocked out cold and you've got blood on your knuckles. Tell me you fought for them. Because that would have been appropriate, right? And this is God. God's jealousy is a protective jealousy because we belong to him. And yet, when it comes to idolatry, it's a far worse reality because we're the kids on the playground who are now running to someone else and calling them Dad. Because we're making that person God or that thing God instead of God. And so here's God being appropriately jealous. Jesus gets jealous of us because we were made for him. We were meant to belong to him in relationship with him. And see, God made us to know him so that we would belong to him and experience him and ultimately worship him. Not because God's insecure and like is in desperate need of followers, like some weird Instagram social influencer who's like, no one liked my post today. Like that's not what God is like. like God's not insecure. God's incredible. And he understands how great he is. So that's why he created us to experience him. And our greatest joy in life would be that we would know him and experience him and walk with him and reflect him. And that means that being people made in his image, our greatness is found when we reflect him to the world around us. 
not when we reflect the values of the world. And so here's Paul chasing down these Corinthians because he's wanting to protect them, helping them understand that they were made for Jesus. They were made for the one who's given them life. And so when we chase anything else, we're settling for so much less than what we were created for. And so these words that are given were meant to protect, protect from the folly of idolatry and protect for our fidelity to Jesus as Lord because idolatry is messing with the spiritual reality that has real life implications. And so I think a question that just kind of flows out of this is, is for us to kind of just check our hearts and say, hey man, how are you doing with idolatry? Which kind of feels weird at one level to say it, right? Because like, I don't have any weird statues at my house. How about you? Like, I mean, some of you maybe, depending on the culture you came out of. But like, kind of in general, I'm like, wait, wait. I don't, think I, I don't think this is an issue in my life. Well, maybe we need to press in and kind of ask, well, what does it mean to have an idol? Like, what is an idol? So there on your notes, here's, here's what I think is just a very simple, basic definition of what an idol is. An idol is this. Anything that replaces God as God. So here's another way to chase after it. Whenever you find yourself participating in something that competes for your pursuit of God, you're messing with an idol. Whenever you find yourself participating in something that's competing for your passion for Jesus, you're messing with an idol. Because an idol is anything that replaces God as God. Paul paints a picture of this in one of his other letters in Romans chapter one, there in your message notes, talking about like ancient humanity of old and this mistake that they had made. And look at what he says here. He says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. See, the mistake was this exchange that took place. And it wasn't the great exchange. It was a lousy exchange. Because anything that replaces God as God becomes an idol. And in that moment, what we're doing is exchanging God in all his glory for something far less. And so I don't know about you, you got any idols in your life? Any place where idolatry is showing up? Uh, several weeks ago, we were doing some teaching and Michael was just kind of talking on some of those topics. And so he just kind of shared like, here's some places where idolatry might show up. And he's like, seven P's of idolatry. And I loved it for two reasons. One, because it was like, oh, that's my life, that's my life. But it also alliterated, they were all P's. And I love it when a pastor alliterates because it just seems cool, all right? <laughs> But I just want to run through these with you real quick to maybe just help you begin to recognize, hey, is this something in my life where Jesus wants to meet me and and call me out of something into something better? So I'm just going to list them and then we're going to come back and revisit them real quick. So if you don't get them all, that's fine. You can listen to the podcast later. But maybe here's some areas where this might show up. Maybe it's showing up in a person in your life. Or maybe it's showing up in your possessions. Or maybe it's showing up in a position that you're trying to attain. Or maybe it's showing up in your pursuit of power or your pursuit of pleasure or your desire for popularity, or maybe it's just simply showing up in your pursuit of the next whatever. Any of those stirring something? Because I think it's really easy for us to, with the, sometimes even with the best of intentions, to make another person our, our idol, to replace them as God. Like, have you ever done that? If those of you that are married, have you done that with your spouse? Like, you're making your spouse responsible for all of the happiness in your life? 
Man, that's a terrible burden to put on another person because they were not made to do that. But oftentimes we'll do that. And then when our spouse isn't living up to our expectations, that's when we begin to stray. Well, maybe I can find it in another person. That's when someone's becoming your idol. Or if you're walking in singleness and it's just that until I have that perfect person in my life, I'll never be complete. And so you're just chasing after someone instead of saying, God, what do you want with my life? This becomes the priority. It's easy to let someone take the place of God in your life. Or what about with your possessions? Like the stuff that you have. Here's how you know you might be wrestling with possessions as your idols in life. Do you own your stuff or does your stuff own you? We had family with us this week for Thanksgiving, and my brother came with his, his sons, so my three nephews were running around the house, and let me tell you, I didn't know my stuff owned me until they started messing with my stuff. I'm like, put that down. Don't touch that. Don't break that. I'm like, ah. I'm like, inside, I'm like, what is going on? It's like, oh, I think my stuff can be an idol. My unwillingness to share what I have reveals something about what I think this is in my life. You know, maybe it's the pursuit of a position in your, in your life. Like maybe your whole goal in life right now is I just got to get to the top of that ladder because that's where it'll happen. Let me tell you, there's nothing worse than getting to the top of the ladder and realizing it's not enough. But the pursuit of a position can often do it. Maybe it's the desire for power in your life. How many of you like to be in control? Yeah, me too. And yet somehow we're trying to gain power so that we can feel like we're in control. And maybe that's becoming from a place of darkness in your own past because you were hurt or victimized. And now you need to be the one who has power so that it never happens again. And so power is becoming our God instead of trusting the king who has power. Maybe it's in this pursuit of pleasure. Oh man, God made this beautiful world that has so much good in it which we can turn into idols all the time. And when pleasure becomes our God, we will do ugly things so that we will feel good. Maybe it's that desire for popularity. Can I tell you how glad I am that I'm not an adolescent growing up in this season of life, this time of life? Like high school students, God bless you, but like social media and all that stuff, like I watch my daughters wrestling with that and like no one liked my stuff today and it's like terrible. I'm so glad that I have matured beyond the need for the approval of others. I'm not driven by that at all. Except inside of me right now, I'm like, I really hope they like this message. I really hope that, that, that no one's hurt or offended and everyone, like we're all singing Kumbaya by the end. Like, because I wrestle with this. How about you? And let me tell you, like, you do not want us as your spiritual leaders to be driven by what you want. You want us to be saying, Jesus, what do you want? And be faithful to that. But man, popularity can become an idol. Or sometimes it's just simply the pursuit of the next. Jesus, I'm never content with what you've done or what you're doing in my story. I need something else, something new. It doesn't mean we don't have drive or a healthy or a holy ambition, but if we're never content with who he is and where we're at in the story, maybe the pursuit of something else. You know, as I was musing on these, the seven Ps that were there, I thought, like, I think there's actually an eighth one that maybe we could mess with a little bit here. How about politics? Ooh, there's the tension. Have, have you ever made politics your God? Like your political affiliation or leaning? Let me tell you, here's how you know when politics are becoming your God. When you are overly undone by whoever gets elected to the Oval Office, or you are overly filled with hope by whoever's sitting in that Oval Office, you've just found an idol. Whew. 
And you're wondering, am I talking to the conservatives or the liberals right now, aren't you? <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> because idolatry is on both sides of the political fence. Can I just tell you, I'm so grateful for our country. I'm so grateful for the freedoms that I have. I'm so grateful for the men and women who have guarded that freedom for generations. Yeah, we should be grateful for them. But you know what happens when my country becomes my God? Something ugly begins to happen in my life. And that's why I begin to attack and fight and hurt others who disagree with me. Even though I think there are better ways to think and better ways to live. And see, I, I think we need to wrestle with this because our hope is in a coming king and his is the eternal kingdom and Jesus' kingdom existed long before this country ever existed and Jesus' kingdom will exist long before this country's done, long after this country's over. And he's our hope and he's the one we put our trust in. And something ugly happens when country becomes God instead of God being God. And see, when these things begin to surface in our life, when this idolatry begins to rear up, what does Paul tell us to do? Uh, see how you can fit it into your life. No, what does he say? Flee from this, run from this, because idolatry in whatever form it takes, it has real life implications, which is why we're told to run. Run for your life. So let's wrestle with a couple of ideas here that flow out of what Paul's saying for our story today. And so the first idea here on your message notes, when it comes to idolatry, flee. Flee because flirting leads to death. See, because what Paul's wanting to protect them, he's like that, that spiritual leader, that good father looking out for him, chasing him down the path. He's wanting to protect them from the folly of idolatry. And the folly of idolatry is what happens when you participate. Because with idolatry, what are we participating with? What does he say? Demons. Like there's a dark spirituality that surfaces. And this might seem more obvious when we look at their context and their culture. Because it was saturated around them. All these pagan temples and things that that was a part of their everyday practice. It may be harder for us to recognize what that means in our own story. Because I don't know about you, but I'm not planning to go to any pagan temples this week. <laughs> and yet what Paul is helping to frame here is that there is a demonic influence involved with idolatry. And here's what we need to recognize. The demonic influence isn't necessarily in the idol itself. Right? So when you begin to make that person a God in your life, they, they may not be the devil, though you may think of them as that later because you don't like them. But the demonic influence of idolatry is much more involved with the lie that idolatry tells us. And so here's the lie of idolatry. If you pursue this, whatever it is, it will be enough for you. And then there's a subtext to that lie, and this is the demonic influence. If you pursue this, it will be enough for you because obviously God isn't. And that's when we begin to play with this stuff and it gets dangerous. We begin to participate with the demonic influence of idolatry because what we're saying is, God, listen, you're not really doing it for me. So I'm going to go and pursue life someplace else. And I'm going to chase after another thing. I'm going to chase after something that I think will be enough for me and fulfill me. And like, this isn't a new lie. This is like the very first lie. Like you look at the story of our first parents in the garden. When the serpent came, this is what, this is what the serpent says to our first parents in Genesis 3, 5. 
It says, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Like the implication of that is he's holding out on you. If you want to have the life you're looking for, do the one thing he said not to do. Chase this and then you'll find life. Man, how did that wind up? Are we better off? (laughs) No, things are seriously messed up. They bought a lie and it ultimately led to death. This is why when Jesus showed up, one of the things he did was to come after the enemy because he wants to lead us out of that into freedom. And so Jesus has a lot to say about who Satan is and what he's done. So look at what Jesus is saying. He's having this very heated conversation in John chapter 8 with some people that were wrestling with like, well, Jesus, we want to believe in you, but we, want, we don't like everything that you're throwing down. And so he's having a pretty strong conversation here. And, and so listen to what he says. He says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. By the way, if you have this image of Jesus where he's just like this hippie that only says nice things all the time, like wrestle with that. If you want to mess with a friend, just write that in a card without any kind and just send that to him. Like, here you go. (laughs) Like, what are you saying? But like the point that's going on here is like, what's Jesus saying about who the devil is, who the Satan Satan is? He goes, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth to him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of of lies. And see, whenever we buy that lie that, that somehow God is not enough, whatever path we chase, chase is never a path to life. It's always a path towards death because God is the source of life. And any path that leads in any direction away from God is never a path into life. And this is why Paul says, run, run for your life when it comes to idolatry. I think what's crazy to me about this lie of idolatry too is that I love how Paul just says, like, hey, judge for yourselves. Because if we were just to sit back and really wrestle with the, the lie that, hey, this thing would be enough, I think most of us have lived long enough that we would say, but why isn't it? Like, why isn't it enough? Why, do I, why am I always pursuing something more and something else? And, and here's what's crazy to me about it. If you could have all of those things, like fill in all those P's to be whatever you think it would be, it would still not be enough for you. It would not be enough for me, and here's why. We were made for more because we were made for the glory of God. Only he is enough for us. We were made for his glory to know him and experience him, and when we exchange that glory for anything else, it will never be enough for us, which is why we flee from idolatry so that we can pursue Jesus because here's the second thing about this. When it comes to idolatry, we flee Because fidelity leads to life. Fidelity to Jesus, faithfulness to him leads to the life we were created for. The life that's lost whenever we exchange the glory of God for anything else. And yet when we hold fast to Jesus, when we remain faithful to him, he leads us along the path of life. Because that's what he said he came to do for us. John 10.10, Jesus says this, contrasting himself with the enemy. He says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So that's the life he's inviting us into, the life he's promised us. And there's this reality that takes place whenever we worship. Which, by the way, everyone worships whether you consider yourself religious or spiritual or not, whatever you're giving your life to or you're pursuing with your life, that's the thing you're worshiping, right? And so everyone worships, and there's a reality that takes place when we worship. 
And here it is, whatever you worship shapes who you become. Which means that when we exchange the glory of God for something else and we begin to worship that, it will never make us more, it will only make us less. Because when we worship dimmer things, they will only diminish us. See, I think this whole exchanging God for something else is part of the reason we see some of the, the confusion in our culture today, especially around the idea of identity. Because as a culture, we've done something. We've exchanged God for something else, something less. Like what we've done is we've actually exchanged God for something other than him. We've exchanged him for something far less. We've exchanged God for self. And we've made ourselves the ultimate authority in life. And I, I don't know about you, but it doesn't seem like that always works out for me when that happens. Because when I'm the ultimate authority in my life, it never seems to make more of me. It just seems to make more of a mess of me. And I think this is why there's so much confusion, because we will never be able to answer the question, who am I, if I'm the ultimate source of that answer. Because we're contingent beings. That means we came from something else. That means that we need something greater than ourselves to tell us who we are. We're not the foundation of our existence. Therefore, we can never define ourselves. But because we've exchanged God for self, we're grasping at anything to tell us who we are now. That's why we see so much confusion. That's why we see so much confusion around identity politics and sexual ideologies because we don't know how to answer the question, who am I anymore? And so I'm just gonna define myself by whatever I feel or whatever's happening around me. And, and it's amazingly terrifying to watch what's happening right now because we can't answer basic questions about humanity anymore. And if we continue on this path pretty soon, we won't even be able to define what it means to be human anymore because that's the logical trajectory of the path. There's so much confusion because we've replaced God for something less. It's why we see so much struggle with social power dynamics and racial tension that's going on right now because we've put ourself as the ultimate authority and now if self is the ultimate authority, then the only way I can truly define myself is where I find myself within the social paradigm. And so it's why we get trapped in concepts like intersectionality because yes, this might explain where I'm at, but it can't explain who I am or how I get beyond it. And because of that, there's no God in the equation. There's no chance of transcendent growth beyond where I'm at. And so my only option is to attack and cancel you. Man, it's ugly. Man, we need to get God back in his rightful place in our lives. Because the exchanging of God's glory for anything else will only ever make us less, not more. And this is why Paul says it absolutely matters what you participate in because what you worship shapes who you become. And so we've got to flee the idolatry of our broken culture so we can pursue Jesus once again. Because the beautiful thing about that is when I get Jesus back in his rightful place, I suddenly have found the one who can tell me who I am. And I am loved. I am God's creation. I am child of God. I am forever, forever in his grip. And no one and nothing can take that away from me. So anytime the values of the culture run counter to Jesus and his kingdom, we've got to choose, friends. Because you cannot drink the cup of demons and the cup of the Lord. And we have to choose, Jesus, will I let you define how I will live my life? And will I trust you with all of me? Or will I go the way of culture? 
And Jesus invites us into something incredible. He invites us out of the brokenness we find ourselves in, into the hope of a new life with him. I love what Jesus says here, John 8, 31 to 32. Look at what Jesus says about this. He says, to the the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, do not miss that. It's not enough to say, I believe in you, Jesus. I need to follow you, Jesus. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, that's what he's inviting us into. And see, once we begin to know who Jesus is, we suddenly have a framework for knowing who we are because fidelity leads to life. And so here's Paul chasing them down the pass and running up to them and saying, my dear friends, run from this stuff. I want to protect you from the folly of this and I want to protect you for the fidelity to which you owe Jesus because you belong to him. And so let me ask you a question. What do you need to turn from? What do you need to run from so you can pursue Jesus? Maybe a good place to start is right in the middle of the tension you're feeling because something's stirring there. And let him speak into that. And let him show you what the path to life looks like. You know what's terrifying about that question? Is what it requires. It requires this thing called surrender. Jesus, I need need to surrender all of me to you so I can grab on to all that you have for me. Jesus, I need to surrender to you all the idols in my life, the things that I think are enough. I need to denounce the lie that these things are enough and turn back to you and believe once again that you are enough. And so as I surrender to you, I'm going to step out in this thing called faith. And faith is nothing more and nothing less than trust. I trust you with all of me because I believe you have life. And so I just want to invite you to wrestle with the tension right now. And we're going to go into this final song, and I want to invite you to, to bring that tension into this moment and invite Jesus to speak words of life to you. Because I want to pray for us as we go into this time. I just want to pray for you wherever you're sitting, wherever you're at. And maybe let the words that I'm going to say and the words I'm going to pray right now help shape whatever's going on with you and Jesus in this moment. And so, Jesus, we, we just want to pause once again in this moment and acknowledge truth in your presence. You are king. You are Lord. So we surrender because you are good and you are for us. And so, Jesus, in this place, we want to come into your presence and we want to come before you and and lay all the idols of our lives at your feet and give you permission to lead us into freedom, into something new. Because here's our hope when we encounter you. We were made for more. We were made for you and all your glory and all your wonder. And so here in this place, we want to step into that life. We want to step back into that life. We want to turn from the brokenness of the world around us 
and find ourselves in you. And so Jesus, would you come and meet with us in this moment? Speak into the depths of who we are. Lead us into freedom. Lead us into life. Amen. Let's stand and sing this song together. Thank you.